Welcome to the penultimate episode of season one of That Wasn't Supposed to Happen. You may have found yourself here for the first time for this particular episode. Do your interest in, your activism for, your empathy toward the story of Nicole Nikki Adamando. It seems appropriate to begin by reminding that we are not a true crime podcast. We tell stories here, stories from people whose lives were changed by or after an event, or in ripples even when the unexpected happened. Perhaps Nikki's story is the intersection of the two. From New Yorker articles, to documentaries, to news specials, to the Ambie-nominated podcast, Believe Her, Nikki Adamando's story is continuously being told. It's been used to confront antiquated myths about domestic violence, to illuminate the social construct of seeming manufactured disbelief in survivors, of educating the public on criminalized survival, that there even is an epidemic called criminalized survival. Inevitably, each reporter was tasked with telling the stories we don't always tell, and so too will I. Just not about Nikki, not this time. In a few moments, I'll share my exclusive interview with Nikki's sister, Michelle Horton. You'll get to learn about Michelle's life before 2017 and after. You'll hear the part where their stories coalesce, And though the task of the episode was to tell Michelle's story, we deal with navigating the blurred lines. But before we get there, I wanna talk about the power of stories. Subsequently, the devastation of silence. A few years ago, we heard the story of an at that time unnamed victim who was raped behind a dumpster by the type of human that would do without remorse or hesitation what he did to a woman he desired to take advantage of. He was called a great accomplished swimmer. At the trial, his father told the story of a boy who had a promising life ahead of the quote, few minutes of action, referring to the rape his son committed. And the victim remained named Emily Doe throughout the court proceedings. Judge Michael Aaron Persky sentenced the rapist to just six months in prison, citing jail time as a severe and undue impact on the criminal. When you hear these facts in succession, it seems unbelievable, as in unable to be believed. How could the father utilize the word action? How could a judge fear the impact of jail on a criminal? How come the victim had to remain unnamed, unhumanized throughout the trial? We've never seen these stories before. We've never heard them. We probably have very few skills then to process them. And then what of the stories that come of this story? What did that sentencing do to the boys that helped who we now know is Chanel Miller? What story did we tell them of the importance of their getting involved? What did we tell Chanel about her worth? The worth of how her future was impacted versus the worth of her rapist's future. What story are we told knowing it took two years for the judge to be recalled? Three years after that trial, Judge Edward McLaughlin, a former prosecutorial lawyer, 
whose understanding of language and linguistics would be expert, at the very least, ruminated that Nikki Adamando had, quote, reluctantly consented to the abusive acts she endured. There is no such thing as reluctant consent. That is not a phrase or a term or a theory of behavior. Consent by definition could never be consent and be reluctant. Both judges exhibiting the gall to speak crudely, without fear, it seems, of due retaliation. No action has yet been taken against McLaughlin's bench. What stories are we used to hearing? What stories aren't being told? An entire nation watched the dash cam footage of the Petito Laundry traffic stop. We watched when Gabby shook through her story and Brian politely turned down water. We watched when the cops discovered Laundry's cuts on his neck, scratches, and the injury from the thrown iPhone. A couple squabble. She must get physical when she's upset. No one stopped to realize those were defense marks. No one considered a woman scratching a man is a woman defending herself. So why am I citing these stories if I first underscored that this is not a true crime podcast? Because beyond the cases themselves, beyond the truth of the crimes, are all the stories about us, the society, the key players, the voices that were amplified and the voices that were silenced. Why do we need the stories we've never heard before? Because they illuminate the part of the bigger story we formerly couldn't see. Michelle Horton's story is that of a sister thrown into the impossible task of raising her sister's children while simultaneously grieving what happened between her sister and her sister's partner while simultaneously trying to learn how to help all of them, while simultaneously raising her own son. Michelle and I don't give too much away here. We're not going to hit you over the head with how hard it is to mother traumatized children. I think it's important to hear Michelle speak from a place of resilience and action, as she naturally did during the interview. Her story will highlight the lack of services given to those found in her situation, but it also highlights the ripple effects felt by the community, by the kids forgotten in the egregious sentencing, the readers that lost Michelle's words for a time. And what is the story we told Michelle and her community when they went through a circus of a trial in disbelief, baffled by the tactics, feeling crazed by it all? What story have we told them when an appellate court amended the sentencing, declared prosecution used morally bankrupted and arcane myths to make their case, that the judge got sentencing most absolutely wrong? Does that amend the sleepless nights, the great hairs, the tears, the throbbing bellies? What story are we telling about Michelle when we call her a warrior? or render her superhuman? Is the story about her superhuman ability to adapt or her humanity through it all? Is it both? This much I know, this is a story about a woman 
forever changed by a flood of events, an unrelenting series of changes, a story where no minute has been certain since. Thanks for listening. This is me and Michelle Horton. That wasn't supposed to happen, no, not at all. No, not at all. No, not at all. No, not at all. That wasn't supposed to happen. away from your writing projects or maybe I'm a savior <laughs> well I think it's good practice right because go. I'm gonna have to start doing this yeah and um I just like hanging out with you Aww. so I've been truly looking forward to this so how is the project going though it is the hardest thing I've ever done in my life yeah truly yeah truly because I mean I got the opportunity to do it right before the pandemic. Yeah. So, and also I had not this feeling that like at the time she had a 19 to life sentence and there wasn't, it would, it would take a miracle to really undo that. And I kind of felt like, well, this is my life. Everything was kind of settling and then nothing really settled. It just got kicked back up. So while I'm like navigating all of that, I'm also trying to write a book that is, you know, bringing it all back up to the surface, which is, you know, Challenging. Challenging. Yeah. I mean, this whole project that I'm doing now is a way for me to avoid my own writing project. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so much easier to avoid the writing uh, project. I think it's actually, yeah, most writers, I think that's a skill. You yeah. know, the best writers avoid writing. <laughs> oh, man. Did yeah. you always want to be a writer? Always. Really? I mean, it was just this sure thing that I was going to do. I, I don't know that. where I got the confidence from, <laughs> but it was just like, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And every teacher would reinforce it. My parents would be like, yeah, totally. Yeah. You know? So it was just like the end result of every path I saw myself going down. Wow. Like even elementary school, you were like, I will be a writer. Second grade, wow. I think probably was like wow. every year. What do you want to be when you grow up? A writer. Yeah. It was clear. I always felt really lucky that like kids struggled. Like, what is it? What is my thing? And I'm like, I found that when I was, you know, six. Yeah. 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 I think it's just the way I look at the world, the way I process things. And just, it was a skill that people were like, you were good at this. Right. So I'm like, how much of it was me and how much of it was other people telling me, oh, you're really good at this. And then it was like, okay, I'll just keep doing it. Yeah. I know for myself, I was um, declared as a sociology major at first and it was a an intro to narrative writing, you know, teacher that told me, you're really good at this. Aren't you a writing major? And I was like, nah, I want to study the mole people in the subway. And she was like, 
nah, you're a writer. And I was like, oh, okay. And that like really threw me for a loop. I had never thought of it that way. So for you, like since you knew college trajectory, how did that all go? When I was thinking about college, it wasn't like, I want to write books. Mm. That was like, when I'm old and retired, I'll write books. (laughs) But um, yeah, I went into journalism because it was like, I'm a good writer. I Mm. like asking a lot of questions. I'm Mm. very curious. Mm. And uh, yeah, it was just like a natural, a natural fit to go into journalism because then it was like a job. Right. There's more jobs being, you know, a journalist than, um, oh, hi, I'm I'm the next novelist. Like, that's not how that works. Yeah. 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 But nobody really was like, writing is a skill in any job that you could ever do. I mean, I was really scared into like enjoying writing when really anyone could have been like, well, great, you have a skill of writing. Now find something else you enjoy. Because it got to a point in journalism school where they were like, well, it's great that you like to write, but you need to write about something. You have to be Mm. an expert in something to write about. So I was like, oh, I kind of forgot about that part. (laughs) (laughs) I I guess, I mean, how would you know? You know, because like, I guess you thought like you're handed an assignment and you become an expert in the act of being mm-hmm. handed that assignment, which kind of feels like foreshadowing right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a clear pattern. Every job I ever got, I was not an expert until I, I was tasked with writing about something. And then all of a sudden right. I become an expert in it because, right. yeah. So after college, you had some great opportunities. Yeah. So, I mean, as soon as I graduated, I was, I'm like a very tenacious person. I get my mindset on something and I'm just going to do it. Yeah. So I wasn't going to not be a writer. I was going to figure out how to do it. Right. But I got pregnant right right after graduating, which was very difficult. I couldn't pour my life into my career, which is Mm -hmm. kind of what I always thought I would do. Like Mm -hmm. my sister was the maternal one. She would have all the babies. I would just be like the New York City career woman Mm -hmm. who's like focused on myself for so long that I like forget to have kids. That was kind of like (laughs) what I I imagined for ourselves. Um, Yeah, but then I got pregnant and I took a writing job that was a little safer yeah. Um, so I, yeah, but it was a political writing job, which I did not foresee for myself. I was working up in Albany, but I was a writer. I could write on my tax return. I was a writer. So that was like, I'm fine. That's all I need. I love your ability to to see it that way. I feel like, you know, the plan shifted with an unexpected, can we say that unexpected pregnancy? Very unexpected. <laughs> yeah. And you didn't get to do the, you know, Kate Hudson, how to lose a guy in 10 days life, right? Yeah. And you were just like, okay, I will move back home. I will do the Albany job. It'll, it'll suffice. Yeah. It seems like when you're thrown off course, you have the ability to sort of like carve out a new course. Yeah. So you're in Albany, political writing, lots of downtime, any downtime? Oh, no downtime. Mm. I mean, that was my life because I was living in this area, in the Rhinebeck area. Yeah. And commuting up to Albany. And before that, I was working in Manhattan, which kind of consumed my life. So, I mean, the commute alone takes up so much of your time. And then I have an infant at home. So that was just, that was my life. Yeah. There was no like hobbies or like creative writing. Yeah. No. So then when does the blog start? When Noah gets a little older? I had downtime at my job, actually. Oh. More than I had downtime outside of my job. The job was, it was a really good job. Some of the best writers I've ever worked with, Mm. truly. Like 
technical, technically good writers were Mm -hmm. at this job, but there was just a lot of us and there wasn't a lot of work to go around. (laughs) So it was at my desk in Albany, actually, that I was like, that was, it was like 2009. Mm. So it was like mom blogs were were like a thing that were huge. Yeah. Huge. So I was reading a lot of mom blogs because I, I didn't have friends. I was 22 years old. I didn't have friends who were having babies and the older generation in my family hadn't had babies in a long time. So it was kind of me who was doing this for the first time. So I went to the internet and found other moms and tried to like find a community. Yeah. And then I was like, I could, I could do this. I could write. I did it with the intent of like, oh, this could be my next career move, you know, Mm. because working full time with an infant, I had to go back when he was eight weeks old. It was just horrific. And it wasn't a job I was passionate about. (laughs) So I felt like if I was going to be away from him, I wanted it to be for something worthwhile for me. Yeah. So I was like, I could do this. You know, it was, it was a brand new business model. I didn't even know how people bloggers made money, but, um, how do they make money? How did you make money? I mean, I don't think I really made money off of that particular first blog, but Mm. because I had like writing samples, you know, like I could point people to like writing I was doing. And it was an interesting take on the mom blog because most mom bloggers at that point were in their thirties or their forties and they're established. And I was a voice that wasn't heard very often. Mm. It's like straight out of college, super ambitious. I wasn't like really religious or like any other reasons that women found themselves having kids really young. Right. The other niches. Yeah. You didn't really check those boxes. I was like, I still want to like live my life and have this career and have a successful marriage. And um, it was just a a voice that people were like, oh, we don't hear this very often. So then I started to get job opportunities. I paid from that, that, you know, first step. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So how long were you in the blog verse? Oh my gosh. So I started my own little blog in 2009. Then I got a job. It started as an intern, Mm. which then very quickly turned into a paid job at a parenting magazine. Mm. Um, And then I started working with bloggers. So I started to kind of see behind the curtains of how people were doing it and started making connections and then started a site called Early Mama, which um, I really started as a community because people were finding me. Yeah. And we're like, oh my gosh, me too. I I had a kid really young or I'm pregnant and I haven't told anybody and I'm so scared. And we could just kind of be scared together. Yeah. Um and learn together and support each other and be like, you know, look to other women who had kids really young and be like, they're doing it. They're you know, we can do it too. Right. Yeah. So that kind of took off in a different way. Mm. Where it was like a group it was like a community of younger moms. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like like bolstering, like that, you know, to have that almost, you know, is is another way to fuel the ability to keep doing it. Yeah. But the course changes again. You you had told me that it took until Christmas 2011 for you to realize but you were living with a husband with an addiction? So, yeah, we we got married really young, obviously. Yeah. With all of the right intentions. Yeah. And we were both really busy doing our own career things. And he, you know, what started out as him just going to the doctor and he got a prescription and then he was just kind of hiding the fact that he was dependent on these mm. and little signs in those early years of like, but why are you taking so much money out of the ATM? Why, mm. you know, not really being able to understand what was going on. Yeah. And then it was 2011. So 
our son was two, um, where he was like, there's a problem. Yeah. I have a problem with these. Yeah. And then from there, it was like, uh, some, you know, sometimes it would be like a steady decline where I was sure he was about to die. Sometimes oh. it would plateau where he was in recovery. So yeah, it was like a, a very specific hellscape that I was living in while also having this shiny, happy website where I'm like, we can do it all. Like we can, we we can have a happy marriage um, if we were just like try really, really hard, you know, (laughs) without realizing, you know, there's two people involved here and there's some reciprocity and there's unhealthy dynamics. And what started as being kind of embarrassing to talk about um, turned into like, I need to start talking about these things for my own sanity right. and my own health. Right. Um, I actually ended up starting writing for uh, addiction recovery magazines. I've always kind of used my writing to kind of like loophole my way out of situations or Absolutely. like, yeah. you know, I, I'd find a book uh, about like loving someone who's in recovery. And then I would just be able to call the writer and be like, I'm writing for blah, blah, blah publication and interview her, but like really be talking about my own, <laughs> my own life and getting advice. <laughs> Um, yeah, so, so that was helpful, like incredibly helpful, even just writing and processing and connecting with people in the addiction recovery community brought people to me to help me because loving somebody who's going through that is its own battle and you don't really get the kind of help. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't even know Al-Anon was like a thing (laughs) until I thought it was AA. I actually showed up to an AA meeting thinking it was Al-Anon. Like I didn't know it was two different things. Right, right, right. Um, so that's happening. Does your marriage? <laughs> I know. I'm like, how else do you say that? No, well, that's happening. Yeah. Um, does your marriage? Does it end? It ends um, after just like doing everything, yeah. everything that I could possibly do, and it ended in a way of me finally getting to a point. I mean, I I had to get a job that was outside of the home. I needed to like remove myself from writing at home because. It was all like in the same soupy environment. Oh, I get, um, so okay. that helped. Right, like, I, so I took right. all of these little steps to kind of distance myself, and the more distance I could get, it was almost like, like when I, we were in the same space, it was really staticky, mm. and then I would distance myself, and the interference would kind of clear, and I would be able to feel what I needed. Right. So it was years of even just getting to the point of what do I need? Because my whole identity, my whole life was like, what does my dying husband need? What does my child need? What, you know? Yeah. So I finally got to a point where I was like, this is a self-honoring choice that I'm making. Please, like, please just, we don't need to get a divorce. Just, I need some, I need physical space. It's Mm -hmm. literally the only thing I know I need. Mm -hmm. I just need to physically be apart. Right. Um, And then it just all kind of collapsed, you know, from there. Is that around the time when you got the job at Omega? Yeah, I think that was kind of my my way out of the the marriage, really. Mm. was like I just found this like random job opportunity. Right. And a lot of these things happened very randomly. Like Mm -hmm. I needed something. I knew I needed something and then the right person would come in with the right Mm. opportunity at the right time. Yeah. So that that was... um, a really important step for me to like, I was still writing. I was still doing writing, but for an organization and I could actually go somewhere for a nine to five. And I, at that point, it'd been almost like a decade of me writing at home. Right. So yeah, that was really helpful. And Omega is this place that's like, it's this nonprofit retreat center that is just, the campus itself is so beautiful and the people there are so beautiful that they kind of gave me the grounds to like, 
know how to make a self-honoring choice mm. or the language even. So yeah, I mean, it's all, it all kind of like happened together at the yeah. same time. I think you once told me when you were at Omega and you used all caps, you were so happy. Yeah. It, it was my happy time. Yeah. Yeah. Like 2015 to like the summer of 2017 were so, especially after my marriage ended and it took, I took a several months to really like commit to healing Mm. to like know that this is what's happening right now. I'm not going to just shove all these feelings away and just get really busy, which is what I tend to do. Um, I'm not going to focus on Noah. I'm not going to, my son, I'm not going to focus on like all the other people who need things. I'm just going to like take care of me. And it was the first time I'd ever really done that. And I felt so happy. Like like, oh, I can be happy. Yeah. I, there's possibilities ahead of me. I could like, I could do anything. Yeah. You know, I just felt like there was this clearing in my life. Mm. And yeah, when I like look back at pictures, I'm like, I was really happy. Yeah. That one teeny tiny sliver of my life, I was very happy. And then once again, things <laughs> change. In the craziest, wildest, like I cannot believe this is happening kind of way, especially of how it like layered on top of each other, where I felt like living with a man who has an addiction and extricating myself from that situation was like a heroic, monumental learning experience. It was like, this is my hard thing in my life. And then everything is going to be easy (laughs) after this part. Right. You did it. You, you cured the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And And then, you know, months later at Towards the end of 2017, less than a year after I asked my husband to leave, I found out in the most dramatic of ways that the entire time I've been focused on my own marriage that was falling Mm -hmm. apart, my own like quote unquote abuse, it was abusive, you know, in a very different way. Right, right. Um, But living with someone who's controlling finances, who's, you know, consuming every aspect of your life and who, you know, you you don't have a say or any sovereignty or whatsoever. Like that is its own abuse. But my sister had been living with a much more dangerous, violent abuse that was very hidden um, from us in the family. Mm. And I didn't know about it until police showed up at my door and said, your sister's at the police station and her children who are toddlers are there. You need to get them. And in the matter of 24 hours it all unravels that she had been abused for a very long time. And after CPS got involved and a lot of people in the community started knowing what was going on, he had a gun, he was going to kill her. She got the gun and she killed him. And like, there's nothing in the world that would have been more shocking to me than my sister, who is like the gentlest, kindest, like most maternal and incredible human I've ever known to like kill somebody was like, there. she doesn't kill bugs. Like, what? What? Yeah. yeah. Like, it's yeah. just like, th- yeah. the the rug was not just ripped out from under me. It was like reality completely flipped. And I was like, what's the point of anything? Like, what? Like, wh- right. what? You know? Right. And after all the work you've been doing on yourself. Which wasn't wasted. I feel like it was okay. fertile ground yeah. to handle yeah. this next thing that I needed to handle. I would have liked there to be more space. <laughs> it would yeah. have been really nice yeah. if I had at least a year or two mm. to get my feet on solid ground right. before it was all ripped away again. Flex those muscles a It would have just been yeah. like... conditioning. Yeah. yeah. It, it would have been easier on my like nervous system and um, yeah. my 
ability to like feel safe in the world and to trust people. It was just a lot all at once. Right. But all of that healing, I think, needed to be done because it Mm -hmm. wasn't like the healing that I experienced after my marriage ended was only because of my marriage. Like I was in a relationship where I was feeling unlovable and like I wasn't being chosen and I was being abandoned. Like all of these things are very old wounds that needed to be addressed and looked at before I could like be healthy enough to take care of a situation that like is impossible to like now all of a sudden I have three children who are incredibly traumatized. Let's talk about that. So the cops show up at your door. Mm -hmm. They say you have to get the kids. I'm sure your brain synapses weren't fully operating at that moment of like what that even means, get the kids. Yeah. (laughs) So you get them, they're in your home and do you even have the script of what what to say to them? Do you even do you even have no. enough information to know why your sister's even in jail? No, I mean it was all it all was revealed in these layers that took days to reveal everything. So in those early days, we didn't know what to tell the kids, and I had my parents there to help me. Yeah, and we were all like, we don't even know what happened. We don't oh. even know what they saw. We don't know what they know. Oh. You know, all we can say is you're going to be staying at our house for a little bit until your mom gets back. Yeah, and she'll be back soon. Which, yeah. um, which we did not know yeah. was a lie. Yeah, um, we didn't intentionally say your mom is you know, uh, going to be back soon if we thought that. Because yeah. this could not be happening, right. you know? Like, right. there's what's the alternative? Right. There, right. This, this has been a huge mistake right. that will be rectified because that's how the world works, right? Yeah. Like, a bad thing happened, and clearly she shouldn't be arrested. So right. it will all sort itself out, and she'll come home, and we will all figure out the next step. So after you're starting to get more information what do your days look like? You're meeting women you've never met before. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I was thrown into an entirely new world. And thankfully, my job was like the most understanding people in the entire universe because I just had to drop everything, literally. Yeah. Yeah. And and like, this is now my full-time focus. Um, and at first, it wasn't even the kids because I had my parents to help. Right. Um, it was like figuring out how to, how to write this. Like, what do I need to do? Meeting Mm -hmm. with lawyers. Who do we hire? Who do we not? Mm -hmm. Um, She had a a good friend who had been a confidant who I got to know really well. It was like just doing the one thing and then the next thing and then the next thing. But a lot of it was like having a lot of consultations with people who were like teaching me about the legal system that I had no reason to know. Um, you know, what What happens when someone is arrested in a county jail? You know, like they, there's a, uh, how do you put money on somebody's commissary? Like there's just so much that needs to be learned about this like world that I had no uh, experience with. And you had no experience. Had you ever even had to pick a, well, for your divorce, I guess you had to. We, we, I wasn't even divorced at that point. Oh, we were okay. just separated. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We weren't so divorced never- until after. Yeah. Never nothing. done the like. No, I didn't even. No, I had no speeding tickets. I mean, like nothing. <laughs> so you were like, okay, this. If it was a full time job for you, because mm-hmm. you are now going back to what we said earlier, you have to research something to become an expert. Yeah. On it. So now, this and is there's true. no, there's no like, uh, 
there's a real gap in the system in that like when someone is arrested or, or someone's incarcerated, the people around them are the ones who are supporting them, but there's really no support or advocacy mm. or even like legal consultation for the people who are navigating it. Mm. All of the legal protections are for the person who is right. being accused. Right. But like I had a lot of questions, yeah. you know, for my own you know, making choices that all of these choices were affecting my own life. Right. You know, my my ability to hold a job. You know, when am I go? When is this going to end? When when can my life get back on track? Like, and yeah. there was no answers for that. It was like just pressed pause on my life and waited. Wow. As things started to go on and on, the delays, the change of counsel the change of which DA was going to prosecute. What does life start looking like in that house? Maybe your parent, I'm sure your parents couldn't stay with you the whole time. What does that start well, looking like? Well, this is quite the story. I mean, there's a lot of avenues to go down. My mom ends up dying. So that I, she was like my rock. Yeah. She was the most helpful person in my life other than my sister. Like my sister and my mom were my people who I could count on for anything. And they were both just ripped away. And my mom started having strokes within the first few weeks after my sister's arrest. So what started as like, we're all in this together ended up kind of just being me, um, just based on like other family members' capacities. Because there was just multiple tragedies happening at the same time, like overlapping. So like my mom's people, her sisters, my dad, like- were going to support her life, which yeah. was literally ending. Yeah. And uh, then my sister's in a cage. So yeah. there wasn't a lot of like rumination or like processing. It was just like, what needs to be done in this moment? Yeah. And it was a calling and a lot of help. I mean, Heather, you were in the community. Yeah. You know how much people were affected by yeah. this. It wasn't like it was this secretive, isolated thing that was only happening in my house, we really had no choice but to like open the doors and let people come in and help. Yeah. And people really felt like they needed to. They did. That was yeah. my sense yeah. of like, don't feel bad for accepting help because we need we we need to do something. Right. We can't sit with these feelings. I mean, I remember when it when it all first happened, I just called up Jen at uh at Waddle and Swaddle and I said, what do I do to help? And I became this person that was delivering gift cards to a woman named Elizabeth. Mm -hmm. And that was my job. My job was to go to Waddle and Swaddle, pick up these gift cards or these dinners or these, Mm -hmm. you know, clothes that people were dropping off. And to just, you know, I was the go person. You guys wouldn't have even known to even ask that kind of help. But the community Mm -hmm. did come together with this, like, we had all these plans in place of how to help and at the same time, it felt a little inappropriate that we were so in your lives. And like, you didn't, you didn't know me then. And like, why am I in your life? You, you know, there's like, I don't mean that, right? Like there, there was no appropriate reason for me to be like needling. It felt icky. I don't know. It's just because, really? right? Because it's like, this isn't my business, but I want to help. And it kind of became everybody's business beca- because yeah. like everyone was carrying this like emotional weight. Yeah. That came with it, especially like the community of mothers. Yeah. And it was really it was remarkable to watch kind of the like chain of command kind of form. Yeah. And like people just kind of like fell into line and like yeah. had roles. And I knew who to go to for, for certain things. And yeah. like we didn't have want, like there was nothing that we were like, we really need this or we want this because it, 
it was fulfilled before we even had those thoughts, which was like, I don't even have words to explain how monumentally huge that was. I don't know if it's because Nikki was who she was Mm -hmm. in the community and the kids are like just the most adorable creatures (laughs) on the planet and like really pull out the heartstrings. But like a lot of women who are in Nikki's situation who have family members who were in my situation mm-hmm. did not ha- do not have that. I don't I don't know how it could be done mm-hmm. without this massive community mm-hmm. coming together. Well, that was used against her in in, yeah. in the trial. Of course, it Hannah was. tried to say like, well, you were allowed to go to music class. He he let you on a long leash. Were mm-hmm. her words? I have that written in a notebook. <laughs> I passed that note. To Jen, sitting next to her. I'm like, what? Now, what does that even mean? Like, how could you say, how could you even say those words and think you're doing an excellent job? You just mm-hmm. said the words, long leash. Yeah, I know. But that was the great thing about, if there was a great, there was no great thing. But the, the thing that was helpful was that it was a trauma we were all sharing together yeah. and we could all, I couldn't be at trial. You could be at trial. I could, yeah. That's why um, I went. Yeah. Because I could to to see something really messed up and yeah. really wrong yeah and to not like i know after living with an addict what it's like to be gaslit like i know yeah. that feeling very yeah. intimately and that was what the state yeah. attempted to do yeah but there were so many of us that we could look at each other and be like no you're not crazy what you're seeing is is wrong you you did just mention you weren't able to go to trial is that because you were on the witness list yeah or? anyone yeah. who yeah. could potentially be a witness can't be in the room yeah there's so many rules yeah and i remember thinking like i was you know waitressing at the time so when my kids were in school during the day I didn't, you know, I was home, you know, I waitressed that night. So I was like, I will go to trial. I am not her best friend. I am not her family member. So I'm not biased, right, is how I felt. Um, I will go. I will, um, I will watch. I will see. The day that Larry Glasser spent an entire day talking about an emoji where it goes bun, cheese, burger, bun, or... If you have an Android, folks, if you have an Android, it goes bun, burger, cheese, bun. So doesn't that mean the emoji that she utilized in this text that they were talking about that, you know, brands her in some certain way, couldn't it have been a different emoji? He bled the clock like a, like a quarterback taking a knee. Mm-hmm. And the jury, when you're looking at them, you got the one girl flirting with the guy in the back row. Like <laughs> I would say jury 13. You got the one guy who looks like he is not there, right? His eyes in his glasses, he looked horrified. You got the mean woman at, I think, juror three, mm-hmm. sitting, next so to, sitting next to crying woman. You know, like I, yeah. I, I have all of this like etched in my brain, right? He bled the clock. He lost them. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, ha, 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 they're buffoons. The jury's going to realize they are dumb. Mm-hmm. No, the jury got annoyed. Mm-hmm. And then Hannah with her feigned fight with the midwife about her not liking the therapist. It was like she set up a pick to draw a foul. It was mm-hmm. all intentional. And I was, I couldn't believe I didn't realize it when I'm going, ha, 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 mm-hmm. what a jerk. Not mm-hmm. ha, ha, ha. It was all. They know exactly what they're doing. What was it like for you to be getting these? I'm sure you were getting reports after because you couldn't come. First of all, there's many layers to why this was so horrifying. The first being that 
you think there's a, this legal system where there's all of these lawyers, right? Right. But the crime that my sister was convicted for, it's not a crime to defend your life when you're about to die, but right. she was convicted of murder. But the system really has these like specialties. Mm -hmm. There really is not many people that specialize in this very specific uh, defending someone who is also actually a victim. Right. Like defending uh, somebody at this table when they also could sit at the other table. Right. Um, or maybe they should be at the other table because crimes were committed against them. Right. So it's this very blurry line where there's not a lot of people to choose from. And like, you have to make decisions really fast. And my sister is, first of all, has gone through the most traumatic things a human can go through. Um, and despite that is still pretty with it, Right. but she's uh, shackled, right? Like mm -hmm. she's in, she's in behind bars. So who has to make these choices? That falls on me. That fell on you. I don't have a legal background. Yeah. So I needed a lot of information. No decisions were ever made without like a sounding board, which yeah. uh, included other people around me mm -hmm. who were friends with Nikki, lawyers who were just out of the goodness of their heart were consulting. Right. But like we, we had to make these choices and it felt like it was a lot on my shoulders because yeah. Nikki was like, I don't know what, like you tell me what to do. Like, yeah. I don't know anything anymore. Like, just tell me what to do. Tell me who did, I trust nobody. I don't know anything anymore. It's like when the cops showed up at your door. Yeah. Like, like she didn't think that night was going to happen. No. We all thought she was going to die. Right. And she almost did. So, um, so, so there's also the fact that, uh, I hired these people who were not doing the best job, um, yeah. and asked a lot of people to pay for these, these people. So it was, there's an embarrassment factor of right. like, we went to bat for them thinking that they were, that I, I just, you kind of, you walk into this situation yeah. and you're like, oh, nobody knows what they're doing. Like, no, where are the grownups? Right. Where yes. it's, yeah. When you were saying everyone's a buffoon, it's like, oh no. Cause like, how am I supposed to know? I didn't ask to like watch a mock trial before making a decision right. that came with a very high price tag, which right. my family couldn't pay. Right. And we fundraised every last dime of it. And we right. have no legal bills. We paid for everything, right. which the lawyer fees is just a teeny tiny part of it. There's right. transcript fees. There's um, experts that you have yeah. to hire. When yeah. you're on the defense's side, yeah. you have to foot those bills. Right. If you're on the prosecution side, you have all of the money in the world. Yeah. You have all the taxpayer money. The taxpayer money. Right. But it's on the family of the defendant who's also actually a victim. It's right. The lines are very confusing in this situation. So yeah, it was embarrassing and horrifying. I felt a lot of responsibility when people were coming out of these courtrooms being like, oh my God, oh, like what God. is, who are, like what is going on? So you were getting that feedback. Yeah. And oh, immediately. I mean, I would, I would just kind of circle the courthouse and yeah. like meet at Alex's restaurant across yeah. the street yeah. when everyone was going on breaks in between sessions and to see everybody's reactions, yeah. physically shaking, mm -hmm. crying, yeah. being like, this is not good. And then I would pick Nikki up at the end of the day and she basically can't even speak because yeah. it's been so traumatizing. And then I bring her home to her kids. Yeah. And then we have family time. Very disorienting. Yeah. Very heavy. Trial ends. She's convicted. You get to go to court that day because mm -hmm. you're obviously not going to be a witness anymore. It's over. Yeah. 
The jury deliberated for like four days. Yeah. Um, it was a Friday. It was a Friday. And we all were like, they're probably not going to want to take this through the weekend. So yeah. I had a sense. Yeah. Um, and I was sitting in the courtroom. Yeah. And, um, and, and you know, you, you don't have much notice. Yeah. So it's just me and a few other people. And I, I sent out a text, like, it's happening. The yeah. verdict is in. Like, I was shaking. Yeah. My whole body was shaking. Like, this is it. This is like, I have no control. But this is also my life What's that your, they're deciding yeah, yeah. In, in a way that really wasn't anybody else in that courtroom other than Nikki, right. where it was like, this is my sentence because am I going to spend the rest of my life raising these children yeah. and visiting a prison every week? Yeah. Um, or is she going to come home and be there for their childhood? You know, it was like... <sighs> It was, it was just like, it's a left or it's a right, and it's happening right now. Yeah. And yeah. And it came back that you would be raising these children yeah. and taking them down to Westchester, Brooklyn? Yeah, um, Bedford Hills. Yeah. Yeah. At the time, we didn't know, would it be Bedford Hills or would it be Albion, which is in Western New York, which would be a different kind of hellscape for me to, to manage. Five-hour commute? Yeah. Something like Somewhere that. Somewhere right? in yeah. like... So that was... um. Probably the worst day of my life. Yeah. Because, it, you know, it's sentencing was another horrible day, but like we already knew. Right, right. The verdict, it could go either way. Yeah. And there was part of me that felt like we had this upswell of community yeah. support. We had people dressed in purple every single day. Mm-hmm. And in my head, I'm like, is that a good thing or yeah. is that annoying? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, which <laughs> oh, one is it? Oh, God. Do you um, analyze everything, right? Oh, of like course. Every, should we have not filled the seats? Should we have did, Should we not have had signs? Should we have? Should we have went to the press or should we have right. been... Did the, the thing that we were told is quote unquote good and not let yeah. it be tried be good, in the public. Like be quiet. We, don't engage yeah. on the internet. Yes. Just like be really quiet. Right. Let the system work. But the system. <laughs> doesn't work. Doesn't. So how do you let something yeah. work that doesn't work? But how do you do something when they say, well, if you do that, you're going to hurt your sister. Right. So, so of you course you're not it. going to. Yeah. Of course yeah. you you have to like trust the grownups who do this professionally. Right. So you go home. I promise you, I don't want you to think I want you to speak for those kids or tell those kids stories. You know, I don't want you to think I'm trying to um, make you speak for them. But you go home and you have to relay this information. Does your life and your mothering of them drastically change now? Is it tinged with a different level of things you have to navigate? Or can you speak to any of that? I mean, you would think that it, it does, but it really doesn't. We just kept doing the, what we did, you yeah. know, I mean, and holding them through really, really big feelings. Right. That was the hardest part because she had been home on bail, yeah. which we fought yeah. like crazy yeah. to get and took an incredibly long time. Yeah. And it was a very high price tag that people helped us pay for it. Um, so we got her home, but it was only for several months. Yeah. And then one day she was gone again. Right. Um, which and we did try to prepare them in some way for that. Mm-hmm. The the littler one, she was I don't even know three at the time, mm-hmm. yeah. so she didn't know quite as much. Mm-hmm. But the older one, who was in kindergarten, he knew something really bad was happening. Yeah, and um, yeah, telling them was was really terrible. Right. Um, but yeah, we just 
we just went to sleep and then we wake up and we just do the next thing that we have to do. And it's like, there's kindergarten, there's preschool, you know, my son's in third, fourth grade, just going to school, you know, you kind of like go through the routine. Um, But now you have to go visit your mom in a jail. So, I mean, kids are really adaptable. People are really adaptable. They adapt to things that you really should never have to adapt to. Should not have to, right, Um, right. But it wasn't like anything really drastically shifted. Um, I was a little more dead inside, I think, for for a little while. Just because I felt like we had like the spiritual backbone. Like Mm -hmm. we had righteousness and we had community and we had people praying, right? And like people are like, this can't happen. I won't let this happen. Right. You know, even people who were like, I can see the feel like literally right. would come up to yeah. me like at events and yeah. be like, I, I have a feeling. I try not to hang on to that, but when yeah. enough of that happens, you're like, you kind of just get a little bit in a bubble. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, but we as the people can affect change. We as the people can like make a stand and it can mean something. And after the verdict, it felt like everything was meaningless. Right. I just felt like the choice to like just descend into nihilism was like within arm's reach. <laughs> it was like it was I could just yeah. give up on everything right. and just fall into a deep depression. Right. Um why didn't you? And I I mm-hmm. I think that it is partly something inside of me mm-hmm. that just wants to that shows up for me and and wants to take care of me. You know, that whatever maternal part of me that I give to the kids is also in me that I feel like uh I have benefited from. Yeah. But it's also the you know, we had a lot of people around us to carry us through that. So uh, without that, I'm not quite sure I would have made it out the other side with any glimmer of hope or good feelings left inside of me. Yeah. Did you ever envision yourself being thrust into the realm of advocacy work. You're an activist now. I know. I didn't know much about domestic violence before. I didn't know much of anything about criminalized service. I didn't know that there was a large population of people, of women, who fight back against abusers and are criminalized for a long time. Like, I didn't know that was a thing that happened. Those don't don't make the news. You know, like, we are inundated. I I can scroll and I can assure myself that Every day or every other day, there's another headline of a woman who's been killed and then the guy mm-hmm. either killed himself or he killed the kids and himself. All the time. And everybody's dead. All the time. We eat that up. We've got, we get it every day. So we're used to that, used to that, used to that. That's the story. That's the story. That I I don't know that I've ever, other than Centoya Brown, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, which, which, you know, made headlines just before Nikki's trial or during. Yeah, same time. I don't know that we we get to hear those stories. So why would you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then you lived it. Yeah, because because the the roots of domestic violence are not. It's not. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's like it's very subtle and yeah. it's shared across generational, yeah. pa- you know, generational patterns. Yeah. Things that have happened to my sister did not happen to me. So like we weren't conditioned in the same ways. We weren't traumatized in the same ways. Right. But like. There's something that that I can grab onto, you know, just from my own life. Yeah. And yeah, it, it was it was just from like it just was every angle. Were you ever scared by the people that do not agree that you should be fighting so hard for your sister? Does that ever make you scared about the way you navigate your days? Um, I think 
it affects me in very deep ways. Mm-hmm. I I have been scared. Mm-hmm. I haven't been scared for my physical safety yet. Mm-hmm. However, I also have been really quiet. Right. Um, I'm talking to you because I like you <laughs> as a person. And I just want to like, you know, oh. be with you. But like uh, any time, like, you know, I'm writing a book. Right. That's so scary. Yeah. It is so scary because part of the what kept me so silent in my marriage, what kept Nikki so silent, you know, there's this like family secrecy kind of like pattern yeah. of just fear of being exposed and fear of like speaking out. So I definitely have to fight against that right. every step of the way with this. There are people who are very angry of what my sister did, yeah. will never believe right. that she was abused, right. have their own theories and live in their own reality and they own guns. Right. So um, yeah, I, it scares me. It yeah. scares me yeah. all of the time. You said you've been quiet. You know, I know that you contributed to the documentary And So I Stayed. You contributed a little bit to uh, Believe Her, the yeah. Up for Award right? yeah. podcast. Um and you were even interviewed by Juju Chang for ABC. Yeah. But you have treaded lightly and you have, you know, been quiet in your approach. You've been... Um, Discerning. Yeah, that's a great word. Yeah. yeah. I was trying to come to it. Thank you. Yes. There <laughs> so has co- to be a reason. Collaborative writers. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> have you noticed people that have the, maybe the power or the bandwidth to take up that charge, taking up that charge and being a little more vocal? I think, well, in the beginning, we... I had to pass it to somebody else. Like we yeah. were in rooms being like, who's the person who's going to speak to the news cameras? Because it can't be me. Right. Because I have the kids and I don't want it known at this stage right. that I'm helping and planning because it could be used against Nikki. Right. right. Very, very, in a very real way. Yes. Um, it can affect custody. I mean, like I had every worst case scenario in my head and the best solution was for me to just be quiet as much as I wanted to like rage and show everyone that this is wrong. Um, So I did have other people stepping up, thankfully, who were willing to put themselves out in front. And, you know, it's, it's risky. It is always risky. And now it just feels like it's the right time. It's been long enough. And like, I have things I want to say, and I have my own experience that I think could be valuable. And it's an experience that isn't really shared very often. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's always going to be scary. And and I'm always grateful that there are people who are much more articulate and who understand domestic violence and incarceration and all of these, the, the where they all intersect, they right. understand it like on an academic and professional basis more than I do. And they can speak to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I'm really grateful that I don't have to do all of, all right. of the things. Is your mind ever quiet? I have to find ways to quiet my mind. Um, And being with the kids, I mean, I think it's a unique situation where it's not all, um, I have a lot of people who help me hold this, but the stuff with the kids is really me. So that's where, when I prioritize what's getting my energy and where my mind is going, Mm you know, that's where I know I, I need to be is yeah. to be the person who's taking care of these kids and who's healthy enough to be doing that. So right, if, right. you know, there's definitely moments throughout all of this, particularly when there's like some upheaval, like, 
you mentioned the DVSJA hearing, which was like a hearing where we were going to decide after her verdict if she was actually abused. Um, And we had a ton of domestic violence support for that, but it required like us going out and doing that Mm -hmm. and uh, required a lot of me. And, you know, with the clemency and me going on Good Morning America, these like flurries that require a lot of me. Right. Uh, it takes a lot. Yeah. So I'm not my best self mm-hmm. at home with the kids, right. right? So I have to balance it. And when I have to make choices, the kids have to come first. Yeah. So yeah. there are moments where I'm, my mind is just like never being quiet, yeah. but I have to find ways to to find that peace. Did you have to like meet with therapists and in, in how to raise traumatized kids? Like, it, the thing like is, how do you? <laughs> yeah. Like there's really no answer. Like mm. I, I like similar to how, when my husband was having addictions and I went to the experts and was like, talk to me, like I did the same exact thing for the kids. But like every answer I was getting back was, this is unprecedented. We, <sighs> we don't know. We don't know. And there's still a lot of questions, yeah. you know, the, the facts of what happened in that house are so horrific. Yeah. And there are articles written that say things mm-hmm. um, that are really hard to read for adults. So yeah. when the kids grow up, they're going to, like, this is a lifelong thing of us um, helping them through this. So I, I've done a lot of research on trauma and I have a lot of support. Yeah. for the kids and and people that I can bounce ideas. But there was never a point where it was like, oh, well, here's what you do. Here's the blueprint right, right, for how right. you raise these kids right. after their dad was killed by their mom. No, I, and it was very clear, even when we were doing like committee work for Nikki, there there are organizations and there are a lot of, of things in place that we could use as guidance. But mm-hmm. there was also a sense of like, there are no real experts at this. Like mm-hmm. we kind of have to pioneer a path that's very specific for this situation. You know, DV, uh, one of the reasons it's so, you know, insidious is because it's idiosyncratic to the couple, right? Right. It's always, and 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 um, to the life circumstances. So it's not a, yeah. um, you know, I, I remember a, a certain lawyer saying, well, that doesn't fit with the, you know, the typical pattern of, you know, the laptop being, the that doesn't fit with the typical pattern of, and it's like, none of this is typical. Mm-hmm. None of this. But CPS was, you know, notified them 12 days prior to the incident. So somebody right. was ruminating for 12 days, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't, don't tell me typical. I don't yeah. want to hear, you know? It's interesting because the, when you zoom in, there you can see like every situation is different, but when you zoom out, yeah, you really do see right. there's a typical pattern and it fit completely, but they got distracted by emojis yeah. and by, yeah. you know, these details that they couldn't let go of. Right. She got an appeal. Mm-hmm. How did that land for you? Again, you had just recently spoke about the upheaval when there's a new yeah. you know, thing happening, the DVSJA watching that trial. So that trial was online uh, yeah. in the height of COVID. Right. So you saw the, you know, the five appellate judges on their Zoom boxes. <laughs> um, could you even watch? You had to I did. Watch. I had to. Yeah. yeah. We kind of, we got the committee together. We got an Airbnb and we yeah. were outside because it's like height of COVID, like you said, yeah. um, watching this. It, it, it's like with all of these events that pop up and it's like, 
if I tracked it, it's like twice a year or so, like a spring and then like a winter where something happens, where there's a tremendous dump of adrenaline. You know, all of these things need to be done. Um, With the appeal, it's like getting amicus briefs and Mm -hmm. like um, getting all, like I have all of, all of the documentation that exists was given to me. (laughs) So like every file, you know what I mean? Like uh, I was very involved in like, handing documents over and like right. putting pieces together because right. it's a new legal team. Right. And, um, d- you know, there's just like a lot of adrenaline, but then there's no offloading of it because it's like, okay, now we just wait. Yeah. So, th- I mean, all of these things yeah. requires a tremendous amount of waiting. So like, you know, we're watching the appeal, which is so... I don't even know the word for it because you don't have control over what's happening. You want to just like scream mm-hmm. like, no, you're not listening or you're you know, watching the judges. Are you paying mm-hmm. attention? Like, what what did you mean when you asked that question? Right. Do you right. um, do you understand how serious this right, is? Right, right, you know, right. like everybody get on your A game, you right. know? I didn't notice emphasis on that word in your yeah. tone. Can you like, can you just show me that you understand? What, yeah. yeah. And it's like kind of like reading tea leaves. Like you're yeah. just trying to like, you, I need certainty, yeah. right? Like I need to know what's going to happen on some level. Yeah. And so I'm like looking at their faces. I'm like trying mm-hmm. to figure out like at some points I'm like, that that's it. And, and for this is our only shot, right? So like it's either this works yeah. or she has a life sentence and yeah. that's the end. Yeah. And also there are a lot of options of what could happen and mm-hmm. none of them are great. None of them were great. So um, there's no option where she just walks free. Mm-hmm. And by the way, is also like safe and fine when she comes home. Like uh, that's another, that's you know whole, what I mean? Yes. So like there's no version where I, I'm off the hook where yeah. my life isn't going to continuously be affected in some way. Yeah. And that it's like, oh, everything's better now. So I don't even know what the mix of feelings is watching it. It's just yeah. like a lot of stress, yeah. so much stress. Yeah. Luckily, I'm not alone. Yeah. I have people with me yeah. to process, to to be like, what did you think he meant when he said that? Or, <laughs> um, and, then, and then it's more waiting. It took months before we got a decision. And then the decision comes in a snap yeah. and it's a flurry of adrenaline. Yeah. There's no warning. Yeah. You're just yeah. living your life every day. Like, could this be the day my life is upturned or is it tomorrow? And having to create some kind of steadiness and consistency for kids. I yeah. mean, the task was, it was a, a high task for me. Yeah. Do you feel you have to create that same steadiness when you have your calls with your sister? Oh, because she's yeah. waiting too. Uh-huh. Yeah. And like you, do you have siblings? I do. So it's like, you can kind of like relate to your siblings in a different way where you might like vent more or like be a little bit more authentic. Whereas like with a stranger, you're going to try and like keep yourself together. Right. So absorbing that fear, like very, you know, real fear that she had, where she's like, get me out of here. Like, (sighs) I can't do this. I, you know, standing in between her and her kids, like they just want to be with each other. It, you know, that's your job. Yeah, like you absorb that. Like yeah, you have to. There is a there is a lot of the absorbing. sounding board for her. Yeah, yeah. And then I have the sounding board outside of that, right? But like in those spaces where it's just her and me, and we're having these like sister times. Yeah, it is. Um, yeah, it's just a lot of absorption, and not me not wanting to put back on her because she has so much. Yeah. How did the appeal and the definitive date? 
now being a, yeah. a full sentence of seven and point five years. Did that give you mixed? Like, Very. Yeah. At work? first it was mixed. And I spoke with some of the other women on the committee where it was like truly months afterwards, this feeling of like, I'm still on the hamster wheel, yeah. but like nothing is moving. It's yeah. like this, it felt very anticlimactic. Like, wait, is this actually the end? Right. Because it's not really a victory because she's still over two years. Right, right. Um, the kids are going to be almost, you know, Ben will be in fifth grade. Right. She missed him even going to kindergarten. Like these are important years. Yeah. And, you know, the the actual trial was not overturned. So they they basically decided that everything that Hannah and the prosecution did, like, but then, okay, if the trial is overturned, then what, we have to go through another trial? Like, that's not a great. Right. So it did kind of, um, it kind of was very merciful in the fact. It would have been better if it was five years, not seven and a half, but it was like merciful in that we don't have to like continue the litigation. Like the litigation being over was a huge relief. Right. We don't have to deal with prosecutors listening to all of our calls and like taking every word I say and perhaps taking it out of context. Like that fear was gone. Yeah. But because that was your fear for forever. How many years? Yeah. Years and years. Yeah. Um, Everything we said on the phone could be and was plucked out, taken out of context, just like an emoji. Yeah. And could be used successfully against us. Yeah. Yeah. So then you're not even being authentic and then you're not even using the phone call for what it's supposed to be doing and making that I'm paying for, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, um, so in the sense, it it was a real mix of feelings Yeah. and, and then it kind of went pretty quickly into clemency. Yeah. So it's like, we're always trying to find the next like adrenaline, (laughs) like go, 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 go. Please don't join CrossFit after this. Like, no more adrenaline bullshit. So I did CrossFit prior. Oh, my God. So did I years ago. Prior. And I was like, no more, like, manufactured adrenaline and, like, manufactured hardship. Like, like that used to be what CrossFit was for me, was like, I'm going to, like, make my life hard for this 15 minutes. Yes, yes. It's going to be a controlled hard. Throwing a 25-pound ball up high on the wall is like, I was like, no, I need to lay in Shavasana. For every moment that is not this other life. Like, right. I do not need to go right. kill myself in a gym. Right. right. Oh, yeah. It's funny you said that. <laughs> so in terms of, you know, your story and, and that, you know, we've been intermingling with your sisters for a while now. And as you said, that that there's something about sibling bonds that tends to happen in in all circumstances that are that our stories do intermingle. What's the next steps for you? I don't know what the, I'm just doing what is asked of me yeah. now. Yeah. Because I did have a history. Like I worked in magazines down in Manhattan. I um, did a lot of website writing. Like, so I have, have like contacts yeah. in the editorial world from a lot of different directions. Yeah. And um, the only place I was really sharing anything was on Instagram and it was still very careful. Right. But um, it was kind of a place where I could share more of the emotional reality of my life and what it was like with these kids and showing that like, it's not all, it wasn't all, we weren't crying 
all of the time, right? right? Like there right. are moments where we're sad and I'm giving them space to have those feelings and telling them, you know, yes, it's you, all of this is wrong and I am so sorry and, you know, yeah. mourning their dad and yeah. their grandma and like all of the loss that we've had. Right. But like we laugh. Right. And we have, you know, milestone moments together. Yeah. And the place I was sharing it more was on Instagram because it was private, yeah. not even on Facebook where like other people can read things. Right. It felt like my safe space. Right. But then after sentencing happened, it looked like I was going to get my life back in a way where there wasn't much more for me to do. Mm. So um, an old boss of mine was like, I want to put you in touch with an agent because mm. I feel like, like, it was very sweet too. Yeah. Like, this is for you, Michelle. Yes. Like, you have a story. You have been drowning in your sister's story. Yes. But I have watched your writing and it's moved me. Yeah. And I think other people will be moved too. Yeah. So then that, I mean, it was really like almost immediately after sentencing where it was like, this does seem like the next right thing. Mm. Um, and so, and then the book got bought pretty quickly after mm -hmm. we sent out the proposal. And it was like amidst a flurry of other people wanting to tell Nikki's story. Mm. So it was kind of also like me wanting to carve a space for myself before right. the story just keeps getting told and told and told yeah. for all these yeah. other people who yeah. are not family. Yeah. Um, so it was like, the, it felt like the right next thing to do. And then I've been doing that ever since. I've been raising the kids and then writing this book. Um which I'm wrapping up. Yeah. So I don't know what's after that. You yeah. know, I, I kind of want to breathe, um, put it out there yeah. and share things that I've never told anybody right. that only lived within like a very, just us in a home. Yeah. Um, and I've used it to kind of heal as well mm -hmm. to find myself again yeah. underneath it. Because for the first like 20 drafts, I'm writing her story, right? I'm right. not writing my story. Right. It um, took you a while to realize. Wait. A lot to like find my own voice again. Right, right. Um, which has been, it's still, you know, it's still a process. Yeah. Um, but I also kind of want to move on in a way, you know, like I just like living it and then writing about it and reliving it has been just kind of this prolonged, um, just like re-experiencing the same yeah. thing over and over again. Like pulling a scab off. Yeah. Like you're not letting, not letting it heal. Yeah. Yeah. But the more time that goes by and the more space, the more it can be helpful. Right. You know, when I talk about it instead right. of just like venting or um, just talking about the trauma because yeah. it's a crazy story, yeah. you know, like there is value. Right. In my experience. I cannot wait to read your book. Do you have a title yet for the listeners? No. <laughs> well, we will, when I'm, it comes I'm like, out, we'll, we'll reissue this yeah, episode. <laughs> that's like what I'm doing, right? Like that's yeah. where my brain is. I was just on the phone with Nikki before, like Aww. brainstorming Aww. titles because she's so brilliant. Yeah, she is. She's got such a, she's the poet. You're the prose writer, right? She's the poet. I'm unreal. She, she is. Yeah. A poet. <laughs> I mean, the first, some of the first um, drafts were just letters from her to me. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but you have to have your own writing. Like, this is all her writing. But I'm like, she's so brilliant. Yeah, you wanted to give her a space. Yeah. To, yeah. Well, she'll get, she'll get yeah. time. Yeah. I know it. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming here and for wanting to share this 
part of your story. There's so much more to say. I feel like there's so much more about your story and I can't wait to read it in the pages of your book. Thank you. I am so proud to call this woman a part of my writing group where we mainly eat French fries and chat. But seriously, (laughs) I am so proud to call this woman my friend. You can follow her on Instagram at Michelle Horton Writer. Michelle H O R T O N Writer. As well, you can follow Gallery Books, G A L L E R Y Books, to stay up to date on the release of Michelle's first book. She's better at telling her story than listing her accomplishments, but I'd be remiss if I didn't assure you that Michelle is still out there doing the work, as it were. With her committee, We Stand with Nikki, she's advocated for justice for New York's Tracy McCarter and Liz Ayella, as well as Madison George of the Colville Confederated Tribes in Washington State. You can follow We Stand with Nikki on Instagram and Facebook for more information about Nikki, about other criminalized survivors. If you're looking for more opportunities to join advocacy work, look to Survived and Punished. As well, find out about joining the committee that deals with domestic violence response in your county. And to all the tellers of Nikki's story, Rachel Louise Snyder, Justine Vanderloon, Natalie Patillo, and Daniel Nelson of And So I Stayed, thank you. Kim Dadu Brown, quadruple thank you. The episode ended with a sweet exchange about Nikki and her talents, and I would hate to lose that as the ending. So dear Nikki, your community misses you and cannot wait for you to come home. That Wasn't Supposed to Happen is produced by Doug Wartell at Spillway Street Studio here in Red Hook, New York. Artwork by Natalie Ranganeshi. Hosted by me, Heather Delamore. If you or someone you know has a story to tell, please reach out to us at supposed to happen show at gmail.com. I'll never say anything happens for a reason, but it is reason enough to talk about it. Street.